Welcome to worship from Creef Parish Church. It's the 5th of July. Normally at this time of year we'd have moved to an earlier worship time so that we can enjoy the better weather of summer and also this week we'd be getting set up for the Creef Holiday Club which takes place during the first week of the school holidays. Well, it is the first week of the school holidays and it was great to be in the primary school on Tuesday and see the primary seven pupils and their teachers celebrating with them not just the end of term but also the completion of their time at primary school and now they are looking forward to starting high school, we think on the 12th of August, at least in these strange days, that's the current plan. There's no holiday club in the uh, Academy Hall this week, but we have organised with Scripture Union to take part in Scotland's biggest holiday club. That holiday club is online and it will be happening each week during July. If you have children, particularly primary four to primary seven who'd like to take part in that, get them on to creefholidayclub.org.uk and there they can register, get the videos and take part. So that's creefholidayclub.org.uk for Scotland's biggest holiday club. It's really great that we can do so much online. Although I have to say, it's nice to see things beginning to reopen and to have the chance for family and friends to begin to come together, all the while still observing these safety protocols that keep ourselves and keep other people safe. There's no word yet when we might begin to see some of our churches reopening for anything more than private prayer, but we are waiting patiently for that and we're trying to work out what we might do when that time comes. Whatever we do, it will be quite different from before. And we'll be taking much of what we're currently learning to do during this time. We'll be taking that into church in the future. So here we are. We're coming together in all sorts of different ways to worship God and to listen for God speaking to us through song and prayer and especially through his written word so that we might be found in the living word, Jesus Christ. We sing a great hymn together, the hymn Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven.
Let us pray. Greatly you have blessed us. Joyfully we worship you. Almighty and all-loving God, we come together in the name of the living Christ to confess our faith, to acknowledge your goodness, to celebrate your love and to commit our lives afresh to your service. Greatly you have blessed us. Joyfully we worship you. We praise you for this opportunity to worship you, this time set aside week by week when we share something of your love. And above all, we praise you for the assurance we have that as we meet together, you are here among us. Greatly you have blessed us. Joyfully we worship you. We praise you for your great love that has searched us out and enriched our lives and for your care that constantly surrounds us through times of joy and sorrow, times of hope and fear, times of light and darkness. Greatly you have blessed us. Joyfully we worship you. We praise you for your sovereign power, your hand that has shaped the universe, your purpose that directs history, your grace that transforms lives, and your spirit who sustains the church. Greatly you have blessed us. Joyfully we worship you. You have made us glad in so many ways. Your love beyond anything we can deserve, your mercy inexhaustible, and your care for us never failing. Greatly you have blessed us. Joyfully we worship you. So now we bring you this time of worship. Not so that we might withdraw from the world, but rather that we might serve it more effectively in your name. Not so that we may escape from the daily routine of our lives, but rather that we may consecrate every moment and everything to you. Greatly you have blessed us, and joyfully we worship you. Almighty and all-loving God, receive our praise through Jesus Christ our Lord, who taught his friends, his followers, to pray together, saying, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, friends, over the past few Sundays, we've been looking at how the gospel impacted the lives of various individuals. Stephen, then Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, then last Sunday, Saul and Ananias, 
and how each of their stories contributed to the church beginning to initiate its worldwide mission. We'll go on in weeks to come to look at Paul's missionary journeys and the letters that he and others wrote which make up the rest of the New Testament. But first today we come to the story of the conversion of a Roman centurion named Cornelius and the important part played in that conversion by the Apostle Peter and the important lessons that Peter learned which would transform the Christian church from its Jewish roots into a truly global church where all people, irrespective of age and gender, of ethnicity or background, where all people are one in Christ Jesus. And the real challenge for us today is to be that kind of church without watering down or losing the gospel. For although there were many changes experienced by the early church, as there were for the people of God all through history, these lessons, these changes were not at the expense of the gospel. You know, it's so easy today in our desire to attract people to come to church that we lose the one thing that actually makes an eternal difference, and that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, let's see what we can learn from the story of Peter and Cornelius, for both of these men went through a conversion process as they were changed into people who would be effective in the cause of the gospel. It's quite hard for us to grasp the immeasurable gulf that yawned these days between the Jews and the Gentiles. No Orthodox Jew would ever enter a Gentile's house, let alone sit down at table with him. And we've already seen in Acts chapter 8 how God prevented a Jewish and Samaritan schism in the church. But how did he prevent a Jewish Gentile schism? Well, the story is told by Luke twice in the Acts of the Apostles. It's spoken firsthand by Peter at the beginning of chapter 11. But firstly, Luke writes it down in more detail in chapter 10. And we'll hear that read now. Acts chapter 10 At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, 
and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened, and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I am the one you are looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day Peter started out with them and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. 
We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. for brokenness, hope for despair. Lord, in the suffering, this is our prayer. Bread for the children, justice, joy, peace. Sunrise to sunset, your kingdom increase. Shelter for fragile lives, cure for their ills Work for the craftsmen, trade for their skills Land for the dispossessed, rights for the weak Voices to plead the cause of those who can't speak God of the poor Friend of the weak, give us compassion, we pray. Melt our cold hearts, the tears fall like rain. Come change our love from a spark to a flame. Refuge from cruel from fear Cities for sanctuary Freedoms to share Peace to the killing fields Scorched earth to green Christ for the bitterness His cross for the pain God of the poor Friend of the weak Give us compassion we pray, melt our cold hearts, the tears fall. 
change our love from a spark to a flame. Rest for the ravished earth, oceans and streams, plundered and poisoned, a future and dreams. Lord, and our madness, carelessness, greed, make us content with the things that we When I was preparing these studies in the book of Acts, I had in mind for today the conversion of Cornelius. But really the principal subject of Acts 10 and Acts 11 is not the conversion of Cornelius, but rather the conversion of Peter from his racial prejudice. We've just heard, read for us, Acts chapter 10. It's followed in Acts 11 by Peter going to Jerusalem and telling the church there what had happened. It was only by four successive hammer blows of revelation that God convinced Peter not to call anyone unclean. The first hammer blow was the divine vision of a sheet let down from heaven, a sheet containing clean and unclean animals, reptiles and birds, while God's voice told Peter to kill and to eat. 
Now here in Scotland, we eat a fairly varied diet, at least we try to, unless you're restricted for health reasons or you make the choice to be vegetarian or vegan, pretty much any food is available to you if you want it. So it's a bit confusing when we read in the Bible of things that are considered to be clean and unclean. And you might wonder why that is and why it's considered important. Well, let me explain. Over the centuries, the, the Old Testament law had been twisted and, and distorted by Judaism. Distortions that were held by the apostles as well as unbelieving Jews. And we've seen something of these things over the past few Sundays. The revelation which Peter received in the vision from heaven was then a correction of an error in Peter's theology. But something else changed too. There was a, a, a dispensational difference. The message was short, but it signaled a difference. What God has cleansed is not to be unclean for you. While all the animals on the sheet, which Peter saw, well, some of them may have been unclean. Some of them were, others were clean. But what was the difference? What had God cleansed? When and how did this cleansing take place? To answer that, we really need to go back to the beginning of the Bible to see how and why God changed the rules about what people could eat. In the book of Genesis, in the beginning, we read that when God created the heavens and the earth and a special garden in which he placed Adam and Eve, God gave Adam and Eve permission to eat only that which was from green plants. And out of all these green plants, he prohibited only one fruit on penalty of death. That was the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet that one fruit became the focus of Satan's tempting and get Satan getting Eve and then Adam to eat this forbidden fruit was Satan's goal. And as he did so, he portrayed God as, as being bad for having forbidden it. So when Eve perceived the fruit to be good, good to look at, good to eat, good to make her wise, then she became she came to believe Satan's lie. She became vulnerable to Satan's words. How could a good God forbid them from what was good? And so Eve ate, and then she gave some to Adam. And the consequences, well, they were a loss of innocence and a loss of fellowship with God. The fall of Adam and Eve in the garden was the beginning of all their woes. Of their children, Cain killed Abel, and then the whole earth became corrupt. And we're told that necessitated the flood. When God gave instructions concerning the number of animals to bring into the ark, God commanded that two of every unclean animal be brought on board and seven of every clean species be taken on. And this is really the first mention of what was considered to be clean and unclean. And it seems that the purpose of the extra clean animals was to provide animals which were to be used for sacrifices to God. 
As God accepted the sacrifice of Noah, God made a covenant with Noah never again to destroy every living thing. And the sign of that covenant was the rainbow, a sign that we have been reminded of again and again throughout this time of pandemic. A sign of hope. Now, immediately after this, God changed the rules as to what people could eat. Now, people could eat not only that which was produced by green plants, but they could also eat animal flesh as well. The only requirement being that the blood must be drained from it. Both clean and unclean animals could be eaten, it seems, until the time of the Exodus and the Mosaic Covenant. And it was at this time that the unclean animals were carefully distinguished from the clean animals, with only clean animals to be eaten by the Israelites. And we have definitions of what is clean and unclean. We find that in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, all these rules to be observed by the Israelites, though these did not apply to the aliens, to the outsiders who were living among them. While Israel was to distinguish between the clean and the unclean in the food they ate, true cleanliness, cleanliness, true cleanness was a matter of the heart, a matter of obedience to the law of God in spirit and in truth. When the nation of Israel refused to obey God, they would be sent out of the land and intermingled with the Gentiles, where they would be forced to eat food that was unclean. That was an evidence of their sin and of their divine discipline. And we know from Scripture that God is not slow to discipline his people if his people are disobedient. But we also know that in his great mercy, God provided, firstly, a temporary solution for the ceremonial uncleanness and the sins of the Israelites. That was the sacrificial system with an annual big sacrifice, the Day of Atonement, providing cleansing of the sins of the entire nation. But the full and final cleansing was yet to come. It was that which would be brought about by the Messiah, as prophesied in the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. When Jesus came to earth, he could be expected to speak with a reference to the clean and the unclean, and he did so, rebuking the external cleanliness of the Pharisees, which looked to the outward appearances and not to the heart. Just now, of course, we are very concerned with the cleanness of things, the things we touch, the cleanness of the buildings we go into, washing our hands, cleaning them very often throughout the day. Well, all these things were the, the kind of concern the Pharisees had. They were more concerned about cups and utensils and washing their hands than they were with the condition of people's hearts and their actions. And so Jesus, like the prophets before him, pointed to human sin as the real source of defilement. Not dirt, nor that which was ceremonially unclean, but sin. After Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, Jesus declared, 
all things clean. Now, the disciples didn't really understand that Jesus was pronouncing all things clean at the time that he spoke these words. But they did look back to the incident and they saw that he had pronounced all things clean. That was a tremendous change for them. That cleansing took place at the cross. The cross, Jesus' death upon it, cleansed not only the sins of people, but potentially all that sin had defiled. That's why the definition of clean and unclean as required by the Mosaic Covenant is no longer required. And the New Testament writers constantly bear witness to this great change. And this cleansing was not just for the Jewish people, it was to include all people whose hearts were pardoned by God and who would proclaim Jesus as God's Messiah. It was such a complete cleansing that it would bring near to God and those whom the law would have kept at a distance. They could come to other people, they could come to God. And to this, the prophet Isaiah bore witness. Now Isaiah could not have known the stories of the people that we've been, we're looking at today and the people we've looked at over these past few weeks. But listen to what the prophet Isaiah said and think of the stories we've been sharing. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them, besides those already gathered. That's a few verses from the start of Isaiah 56. On the basis of the prophecy of Isaiah in that chapter, is it any wonder that in the book of Acts we would read in chapter 8 of the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch, and then in chapter 10 we would hear of the conversion of a Gentile Cornelius, a man whose worship God had found acceptable? It's not at all unlikely. Indeed, we should expect to read what is recorded in the book of Acts, and so we do. The cleansing of which the prophets foretold, which Jesus both announced and accomplished, and of which Peter is forcefully reminded 
is that which makes possible this wide menu of heaven in the eternal state. And this is described in the last chapters of the Bible, in the book of Revelation. It's a description of the new Jerusalem, which also descends from heaven. And it should therefore come as no surprise that with the institution of the new covenant, that the food laws should be changed again to reflect the new covenant which was being inaugurated. Indeed, the changing of the rules should cause us to look for a change. And Jesus pronounced the change in his earthly ministry. He made provision for the change in his sacrificial death and resurrection. And he instituted the change by means of this incident with Peter and Cornelius in Acts 10 and Acts 11. All of this backdrop helps to explain the biblical and the historical context of our passage. On the rooftop of the house of Simon the Tanner, Peter understood that Jesus had, in his sacrificial death, accomplished a cleansing, a cleansing which made obsolete the food laws, so that all the distortions and convictions which Peter held so strongly, they had to be set aside. Through the action of the Holy Spirit, Peter also understood that he was not to call non-Jews unclean. A concern for ceremonial cleanliness was not for the Gentiles. So that was the first hammer blow. The second hammer blow was the divine command to accompany the three men who had come from Cornelius. To accompany them without hesitation or distinction, even though they were Gentiles. And so we read, and Peter tells us, that he went to the home of Cornelius, not yet certain what he was to do when he arrived. All Peter knows is that he is to go, and there he is to speak some word. The third hammer blow was the divine preparation, namely that an angel had told Cornelius to fetch Peter. So you see, God was working at both ends, in Cornelius and in Peter, deliberately arranging for them to meet by granting to each one of them on successive days a special, independent and utterly appropriate vision. Now Cornelius was sure that Peter would come and would speak words by which he and his household would be saved. But you know, it took Peter some time to realise that what he was to speak was the gospel. That he was to preach the gospel to this household. Now that might seem obvious to us, but it was a new revelation to Peter. That the gospel he had preached to the Jews in, in Jerusalem was also the same gospel for the Gentiles. And so we're told that Peter goes on to proclaim the gospel in its simplest terms, as recorded in Acts 10, between verse 36 and 43, if you want to know what is necessary to be saved, it's right there in these seven verses. The fourth and the final hammer blow was the divine action. We're told that while Peter was still preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit came upon the Gentile audience 
Now this has sometimes been described as a Gentile Pentecost corresponding to the Jewish Pentecost that had taken place in Jerusalem. But you know, really, there is only one Pentecost. And now the Gentiles were being brought in to the same experience of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Much of the gospel that Peter preached was not new to this audience. They knew the story. And what he preached was exactly the same message that he had preached previously to the Jews. And as the Apostle Paul reiterates later in Galatians chapter 2, there is no separate gospel for Jews or Gentiles, but one gospel by which all people come to Christ. And it's true that any deviation from that gospel, the gospel preached by Peter and all the rest of the apostles and the saints all through the ages, any deviation from that gospel is not the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this same Jesus, we are told, will return this time to judge the whole world, including the living and those who have died. And that judgment will be condemnation for all who have rejected his offer of salvation. If the bad news is that judgment has been given to the Lord Jesus, who is Lord of all, then the good news is that people need not suffer the wrath of God for their sins because the judge is also the saviour and the sacrifice. This judge has been judged for our sins, for your sins and my sins. He has died in our sinful place, bearing in himself the wrath of God. And the good news of the gospel is that all who acknowledge their sin and who trust in his salvation and who trust in his sacrifice, this cleansing, all will be saved from the judgment of unbelievers which is to come. This was the promise of the Old Testament prophets and this was the promise that Peter had preached in his first sermon and this is the promise that Peter now preached to Cornelius and his Gentile household. This salvation which Jesus has provided is available to any and to all who would believe. Now the full implications of all of this has not yet hit Peter and it's yet to impact the apostles and the church back in Jerusalem. But Peter said it and it was true. These four hammer blows the divine action, the divine command, the divine preparation, the divine action. These four hammer blows were all aimed deftly at Peter's prejudice. And together they demonstrated conclusively that God had welcomed the Gentile believers into his family on equal terms with believing Jews. The right deduction was immediately made. Since God had given the same gift of the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles and the Jews, the church must give them an equal welcome. If God had given them spirit baptism, then the church might not deny them water baptism. As Peter says, God does not show favouritism. The one distinction God will make 
is the distinction between those who have trusted in his Son and those who have not. And friends, that is the most important distinction of all. Which are you? Are you a forgiven sinner who has trusted in Jesus as your Saviour? Or are you one who has rejected Jesus and who still awaits divine wrath? My prayer is that you are, like Cornelius, a saint saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. 
Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. These are words of Jesus that we all need to hear. We need to hear these words because they speak into the depth of the experience of so many of us at this time. The words create a picture in the mind's eye. The picture is of ourselves in the times when we are indeed weary and burdened by the particular loads that we have to bear. Alongside this, the picture is of the one who offers us rest. The picture is of human need met by divine promise and finds its context in the affirmation that Jesus is the one who knows the Father and who holds in God's trust all that has been committed to him. He holds our lives in his keeping and offers renewal to those who seek his presence. Wherever we are and whatever our load, the promise of Jesus is that we will find his renewing presence. So let us pray. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Lord, we come to you as we are, for we can come no other way. We come acknowledging the burdens we carry and trusting in your promise of rest. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Lord, we come to you in the sure knowledge that we are not alone. We come in the company of all the saints of old, of all who have known the challenges of years gone by and those who know the challenge of these days. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Lord, we come to you acknowledging that you have already come to us. We journey to the place where you are to be found and rediscover that you have always been with us. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Lord, we come to you as the one who knows our past and sees our present. Set us free from that which binds us to our past and liberate us to serve you in the present. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Lord, we come to you through the one who is the same yesterday, today and forever. May he hold our lives safe as we embrace the future and the promise of his rest. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Amen. Friends, thank you for your fellowship today as we have worshipped together. And I look forward to having a, a chat with some of you over coffee after the service. I look forward to seeing the folks who are part of our Alpha group on Monday night at 8 o'clock. 
And then again on Wednesday morning, half past 10, if you'd like to join us on Zoom for coffee, you're very welcome. As I always say, if you need the code, just get in contact with us here at the Mans. We'll, we'll get you the code, get you connected. We'd love to see some folks who've not tried that before. So if you'd like to try it today or Wednesday, please do so. And uh, we'll have a, a great time catching up and uh, supporting one another as we continue through these, these strange, strange days. Well, until we come together in worship again, may the blessing of God, the ever-present Father, the ever-living Son, the ever-active Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you now and always. Amen. <laughs>